Hello, welcome back to Kind Mind. I've been trying to record an intro to this episode on leadership for days, but it's been so hard to process and speak publicly in any helpful way about the war in the Middle East. I've had many conversations in person with people of many different walks of life, and those have actually been therapeutic, even enlightening and respectful. That's often not happening online, from what I can tell. And I gave this talk on leadership at Speakeasy Spiritual Community a few months ago, and did not have a plan to add it to the podcast anytime soon, but I wouldn't have known the urgency of the message. So I hope you can listen to this whole intro. If you don't like it or disagree, I will listen to you also and relearn or unlearn anything to improve my understanding. A few weeks ago on October 7th, I saw videos of the ruthless terror attacks from Hamas murdering more than a thousand Israelis. And it was gut-wrenching and heartbreaking. I feel sick inside. And images of bloodshed have continued to stream every day since, including thousands of civilian Palestinian people killed in the military retaliation from the IDF. It's felt like I'm at a multi-day funeral with no end in sight, and I see grief everywhere, and that means anger, depression, bargaining, and even denial, which can be perplexing because this really involves the whole world. We are many orders of magnitude closer to a world war, since there are additional attacks from Hezbollah in the north, in Lebanon. The White House has requested an unprecedented amount of foreign aid spending, uh, over $100 billion, I believe, is the request, mostly for weapons to Ukraine and then Israel. Political pundits have expressed that this actually facilitates necessary upgrades to American weapons. We have warships in the Mediterranean, and Iran is making dangerous statements as well. Meanwhile, Russia and China are maneuvering in particular ways. The risk of nuclear war and annihilation is there, however small it may be, but that it's never happened is something that we take for granted because full-scale nuclear war can probably only happen once or never. If it does, there likely will be no one or no way to ever speak about it. This protracted conflict doesn't begin on October 7th. And it really is much deeper than simply two sides. Also, really, no one is an expert. Some, sure, might study this in depth, the history or be more directly impacted or have first-hand trauma, and those voices ought to be centered. This situation involves political science, history, philosophy, theology, economics, psychology, sociology, 
and so many other disciplines of thought. So unless a person is expert in all of those fields, then nobody's an expert. Many factors and actors, that includes the Nazis and their atrocities and the Holocaust and the repair of life for Jewish refugees and the UN and Britain who occupied the area and the U.S., and other Middle Eastern countries and cultures around the world that have some stake in the crisis. Where you begin your assessment in time undoubtedly influences one's perspective. This is all why we need to talk, but with more cultural humility and acknowledging the positionality. Pontificating from safe and privileged places in the U.S. is easy, but it's not how we nurture dialogue. So please share what you know, what you see, what you feel, and let's learn how we can make a difference, if we can, towards peace in the world. Again, not just two sides here. What side are children on? When I see violence perpetrated against a child, I lose my identity. My heart immediately jumps to to concern. What side are children on? Do they have a choice in this matter or any matter? Israeli children were slaughtered, and now over a thousand Palestinian children in Gaza have been killed. And the images of kids crushed under rubble from the 6,000 bombs dropped so far. How would that not weigh on the minds and hearts of anyone, especially parents? It weighs on the hearts of many Jewish people as well, many Israeli citizens as well. Keep in mind, half of Gaza's two-plus million people are children. What do you think about that? There are so many different people one could empathize with and should empathize with. In my work in um, mental health and counseling, I've long thought that I could be anyone. I've sat with so many different kinds of horror stories from ritualistic abuse in satanic cults from infancy of a patient to gang life and people who have murdered people, people in the police force who have murdered people, people who have been victims from the police, people who have lived through unspeakable acts of aggression and oppression. But in all of these stories, I can see myself in any of the positions, if you just tweak a few things. We're not always in control of what we're exposed to, where we're born, how we grow up, what happens with our brain, our health, our exposure to toxins, toxicity of all kinds, trauma of all kinds. Much of what we do, much of what we are, is due to the environment we're born in. 
And so here, let's be honest, no one would trade places with the Palestinian people. Not even before this war. That's reality. The UN reports that 80% live in severe poverty and 60% with food shortage. So we already know they have no future. I think that's okay to acknowledge. We also need to empathize with the hostages held by Hamas. The hostages, their loved ones, like so many, I'm praying for their safety. Do the hostages and their families want the current military actions to continue exactly like this? Don't you think they want even a temporary ceasefire to see if the hostages can be released? It's not like Israel, which is backed by the U.S. superpower, will suddenly lose sight of its target. If there are no hostages released, what would you want as the parent? I fear that more bombings puts those innocent people at risk of never being freed. This euphemism of collateral damage is psychologically distancing from death deaths of victims all around. If I knew that World War II could have ended without atomic weapons, could have ended peacefully without atomic weapons, would I have preferred that? Of course. Wouldn't you? Or the same results could be achieved with one atomic bomb instead of two? Again, yes. If you still would like to dropped, then you don't want peace. You want revenge, and then some, and derive some kind of sadistic pleasure in the crushing of innocent people who are different and who are not their government. So I have more questions than uh, answers or opinions. One question is, what what is enough in this situation in terms of civilian death? What is the plan? It's not controversial to denounce Hamas and have concern, this moral concern for innocent life among Palestinians or any victims. Now, as those attacks from Hamas are prosecuted in this war. Power brokers, those who benefit from war, making that controversial is disturbing. Americans across the political spectrum have been critical of the Bush-Cheney administration and their handling the war on terror, not at the onset, but as it unfolded, right? Many of us questioned the catastrophic cost in human life, including American soldiers, and also hundreds of thousands of Iraqi civilians, the trillions of taxpayer dollars, and the premise of invading Iraq due to weapons of mass destruction that weren't there. I was early to this as our band was protesting the war at the time in the 
in our concerts and in festivals for years in the early part of this century. Many have doubted any real success in Afghanistan, as well as the hazardous withdrawal during the Biden administration and seeing the Taliban resume control and, you know, wondering what is actually different, if anything. These criticisms have been listened to, and they're all fair game. You don't even have to qualify yourself when making those criticisms with the disclaimer that you do condemn ISIS, or that suggesting there be a coalition with the UN and international cooperation. There was never much thought that that makes you a terrorist sympathizer. So remember the false dichotomy then. Either you're with us, or you're with the enemy. Isn't it scary that people can't talk about this without extremism and all-or-nothing terms? You know, the binary thinking is dangerous. It's suffocating deeper contemplation and effective conversation. And all Jewish people are not on the side of Prime Minister Netanyahu or in support let's say, of his leadership, just as all Americans are never aligned with any president. Multiple political leaders have said, this is Israel's 9-11. Then shouldn't we call upon the wisdom from the past 20 years, including the damage to international relations from giving the middle finger to the UN and consensus building to deal with the war on terror? So here the UN can be instrumental in the formation of Israel in 1948, but have no counsel in threats to its existence. They obviously care about that, right? They, they helped to establish the state. So why even speak of international law and cautioning against war crimes? Every time this comes up, the power says, not now. I had the great opportunity to spend time at multiple conferences with the late grandson of Mahatma Gandhi, Arun Gandhi, who started the M.K. Gandhi Institute for Nonviolence in America. The last time I met him was randomly in an airport in LaGuardia, uh, we were both by ourselves. We passed each other, recognized each other, and I considered it a, a great gift and synchronicity to sit one last time with somebody who's part of this nonviolent lineage. But he wrote a letter, an op-ed, in the wake of the 9-11 terrorist attacks, cautioning, uh, acting out of emotion and urging for cooperation and a measured response and further deliberation with the international community. And the major media outlet said, we appreciate you, your work, but now's not the time for nonviolence. So there are no war crimes for the victors in any battle of humanity. Uh, I read a statement from former President Obama yesterday, and um, I was impressed with a few points that he made. 
that I felt some alignment with, and I wanted to share that here. Let me bring that up. Uh, he said in, in one part of his letter, War is always tragic, and even the most carefully planned military operations often put civilians at risk. As President Biden noted during his recent visit to Israel, America itself has at times fallen short of our higher values when engaged in war. And pause there. You think? And continues. And in the aftermath of 9-11, the U.S. government wasn't interested in heeding the advice of even our allies when it came to the steps we took to protect ourselves against Al-Qaeda. Now, after the systematic massacre of Israeli citizens, a massacre that evokes some of the darkest memories of persecution against the Jewish people, it's understandable that many Israelis have demanded that their government do whatever it takes to root out Hamas and make sure such attacks never happen again. Moreover, Hamas's military operations are deeply embedded within Gaza, and its leadership seems to intentionally hide among civilians thereby endangering the very people they claim to represent. Still, the world is watching closely as events in the region unfold, and any Israeli military strategy that ignores the human costs could ultimately backfire. Already thousands of Palestinians have been killed in the bombings of Gaza, many of them children. Hundreds of thousands have been forced from their homes, the Israeli government's decision to cut off food, water, and electricity to a captive civilian population threatens not only to worsen a growing humanitarian crisis, it could further harden Palestinian attitudes for generations, erode global support for Israel, play into the hands of Israel's enemies, and undermine long-term efforts to achieve peace and stability in the region. End quote. So, yeah, I commend him for pointing out that we can hold multiple truths at the same time. I only w wish he had said this sooner, and even more so, I wish that the current president could say this, or would say this, and not so much could. This, this isn't hypothetical anymore. We're seeing this play out in real time, and the sentiments grow more complex. This is also critical to me because as the Palestinian death toll climbs more, it becomes this twisted numbers game. But sadly, it leads people to overlook October 7th, and already groups have used this to diminish the still real and raw, crippling grief and anguish of the Israelis and others harmed by Hamas. And so I empathize with Jewish people everywhere in the world re-traumatized and vulnerable wherever they may live. I have many Jewish friends and talking with Jewish people and other people who identify with historically marginalized or oppressed groups. It makes me realize that epigenetics is not just a theory. It's a reality for people who carry in their DNA the not-so-distant stories of their ancestors and the traumas that they lived through. We talk about genetics versus environment. Genetics are simply stored environment. The stories, 
that we carry and pass on and feel in our bones. I also empathize with Muslims everywhere who are not represented by Hamas or any terrorist organization. In social work, we critique power and advocate for victims. Coming back to children, kids don't have power. This is almost universally true. They can't vote. They, aren't, they are physically vulnerable. They don't have wealth ordinarily or access to gainful employment and so on. So the social contract is that all of us will contribute to their protection. And in the welfare state, if this cannot be done in the family, if a child is truly in imminent danger, then there's a child protective services, even a foster care system. So it's not just collateral damage because those are some, quote, bad parents. Although many think this way also in America. And it used to be that way where whatever's happening in that home is just the business or the private interest of that home. As our moral wisdom expands, we don't think that way. We think that everybody has some duty to protect children who do not have power. There was a, some words written by a Palestinian author, Ghassan Kanafani, that I'd like to share. I wish children didn't die. I wish they would be temporarily elevated to the skies until the war ends. Then they would return home safe. And when their parents asked them, where were you? They'd say, we were playing with the clouds. I also heard on BBC Radio a Palestinian child saying live that she is not afraid of death and that she feels she will probably die any minute. But she has other fears that she has to hide because she's the oldest among her siblings and has to be strong for them. Her other fear, her real fear, is losing part of herself. She said, if I lose my hand or my arm like so many others, I don't know how to live without art. It's the only way I'm able to cope with life. That, you know, that really hit my heart hard as a human being and also as an artist. Who has power? Hamas has power. Maybe not as much as the other actors and governments, but they have power over the people in Gaza. I agree that Palestinians should not have voted for them, and they should rise up, and I understand that it's not that easy. The people in Gaza don't have resources. They haven't had the ears of the international community. Look, in Chicago, I live near Chicago, which has a comparable size populace and geographic area. There are 150,000 gang members. If Chicago was cut off from the rest of the country somehow, 
those gang members would have even more power than they do. And that is three times the size of Hamas. They're involved in crime, including drug trafficking, some, some years record homicides in Chicago, and political corruption in Chicago. There's a long history of political corruption in Chicago. Look it up. It's not just governors who go to jail. Aldermen, city council members. So why don't the rest of Chicagoans simply stop this, simply rise up? Chicago's even home to liberal celebrities and billionaires. The governor's a billionaire. Because the city is complex and historically segregated with groups marginalized. After the Civil War, formerly enslaved black people who were trafficked from Africa were recruited to the northern cities like Chicago in the largest human migration in world history in the latter part of the 1800s. They were employed in the new factories in the emerging industrial revolution in the north, paid next to nothing, made to live in ghettos and squalor, because what choices did they have being proclaimed free and transitioning with nothing, doing dangerous work when we didn't even understand machines at that time or what was transforming, and living near the toxic industrial waste that the white affluent counterparts would never be associated with. Karl Marx understood on some level in his writings that if you want to continue slavery, you convince people that they are employees. So then the city was redlined, which literally means a red pen in the hands of the oppressors was used on maps to create systemic barriers and marginalize people, barriers to advancement and profitable home ownership in conspiracy with the banks and real estate brokers to deny lending and so on. So that is the political socioeconomic landscape in which alternative leadership emerges and illegal markets develop in order for people to survive. It's not so simple. Even as we make changes and even as civil rights movements are enacted, me and my brother and some bandmates had a dangerous encounter with gang members in Chicago 20 years ago. And we narrowly escaped some violence. But it led me to learn more. 20 years ago, there were 67,000 gang members in Chicago. Today, there are 150,000. Israel has lots of power. When one, quote, side controls the other's water, food, energy, and internet supply, and as Obama pointed out, cuts off that supply to an entire population, to millions, we have to acknowledge that imbalance. At the same time, I think Hamas has failed to improve those conditions and even and definitely worsened them. We can be sensitive to these power imbalances. There is hardly another side from Israel in terms of it being a war 
in terms of wealth, in terms of weaponry, in terms of political power, Palestine is not a sovereign nation with self-determination. And I also agree that there are internal reasons for that as well. So to even call it a war may be somewhat misleading and why there needs to be more coordination with the international community to help Israel defend itself. Not to question if Israel has a right to defend itself, but to cooperate in how to defend itself and open corridors for humanitarian relief for victims. We tend to declare many social problems that require diverse councils and coalitions as wars. The war on poverty during the Johnson administration, the war on drugs during the Reagan administration. Those problems are only getting worse. Maybe we need a different model than the war model, than the war machine. I think we can do these things simultaneously out of experiential wisdom compassion, and respect for each individual life. We can critique ideas and especially challenge hateful views, hateful beliefs, wherever they emerge from, be it culture, be it political ideology, or any religion. If there are hateful beliefs in any sect of any religion towards women, towards people of any ethnicity or sexual identity or orientation or the color of their skin or their health condition or physical ability. We all need to be free to name it, to call it out, and then help victims out of that environment. That's not the same as xenophobia. If you see this only through the lens of colonial oppression, I understand and, and I understand that there, there's been demonstrations of a hateful ideology coming from settlers in the West Bank. The Associated Press reported earlier this year that prior to this escalation, there were an average of three attacks per day in 2023 of Israeli settlers upon Palestinian villagers and farmers. If we're only going to look through this lens, we have to also direct that lens to the United States. The Declaration of Independence was not about the full territory of present America. The U.S. military was still subjugating the Lakota Sioux all the way till the turn of the 20th century. So this is an ancient history, or even hundreds of years of history. This isn't seven, just 1776 story or too long ago that it, it doesn't, we can't make sense out of it. Israel formed in 1948, so the last territories in the plains were wrestled from the Native Americans only 50 years or so prior to that. We're just talking about several decades. So if you're arguing for Israel to leave uh, as that being the ultimate plan for peace, well, then wouldn't that need to be the plan for the United States? I'm just asking questions. Are, are either of those even pragmatic? You know, some things in history are so egregious and grievous, like genocide, like slavery. Some things in history are so egregious and grievous that can never be made right. 
but they can be made better. It can happen if the impossibility of right is no longer justification for making things worse. If all are willing to accept that with wisdom and work together, a better world is possible. In the climate crisis, when global temperatures rise one degree and an ice cap melts, there's an asymmetry there. You can't cool the earth one degree and expect the ocean to freeze back into that ice cap and go back up onto Greenland. That's entropy. It's not helpful, though, to only assess incidents in isolation. They are inextricably linked to everything else. We can never end poverty or mass shootings or crime in general if we only judge the morality of the act and none of us will be safer or better off for it. I'm not saying that's where we are yet as a global civilization, but I pray for a time when there can be consensus building on how to respond and solve problems, including longer term, including the humanitarian experts, the international councils on social work, not just emotional authorities like a Bush or Netanyahu or Biden or Putin or Trump or whoever charts their own course that affects the whole world. As Solzhenitsyn wrote, a person can never see things clearly in the heat of the moment, which is just more reason why there ought to be counsel and perspective taking and cooperation with allies. I want to pivot here for a moment because I see all this as interrelated, all the struggle and hurt in the world, and especially the inequality. Just last month, 200,000 people were apprehended at the south border of the United States trying to enter the country. I don't want to say illegally because it's a construct and it dehumanizes people, but in a way that doesn't agree with the nation's standards of law. And that adds up to something like 2.8 million this year alone. It is another humanitarian crisis. I want to also offer my respect to the 85,000 people who participated in the largest healthcare strike in history this month in demand of decent pay and better working conditions. Their employer, Kaiser Permanente, is a nonprofit hospital network spanning several states with tax exempt status on the premise of community investment and whose CEO has an annual salary of over 15 million, or roughly 1,000 times the federal minimum wage. Associated Press reported Kaiser Permanente had a net income of $2.1 billion 
in just the second quarter alone. According to the Laun Institute, 227 out of 275 such community hospitals spend less on charity care and community investment than their tax breaks for a nationwide gap of $12 billion in the, quote, not-for-profit healthcare industry. There are so many problems with healthcare and health equity in this country and the notion of most people's health tied to their employer. What's that? Remember when we said these are the real heroes, the healthcare workers during COVID? The folks working in hospitals and clinics, myself included, they showed up, they sacrificed during the pandemic when we knew very little about it. They wore masks. Their whole oftentimes extended shift So the majority of their waking life in a mask for three years, while their pay steadily declined as inflation outpaced any raises and other benefits were cut during that time. And at the end of a pay period, still struggling to afford the basics, especially in urban centers. And this is similar for the majority of workers in the country. What are we doing? Look at the kids here. Look in their eyes. You can see hopes and dreams fading. Everyone knows a kid struggling with suicidal ideation or an adult with an addiction or both. And the research confirms as much. My parents bought our first house for like $18,000 on one small salary without any higher education. And people talk about failure to launch for young adults these days with the median home price nearing $500,000. The world is desperate for real change and integrity and kindness. True leadership, I mentioned in this episode, is last to eat and first to go into danger. But somehow it's entirely the other way around. In every sector, where are we? It's bizarre world. This is this healthcare strike was the I think three hundred and twelfth labor strike of this year alone, breaking records and involving nearly half a million people from UPS to UAW to WGA and Hollywood and SAG AFTRA. The social and wealth inequality and perpetual segregation you know, and the quality of public schools from one district to another and neighborhood affluence versus marginalization. It's appalling. Three men own more than 186 million Americans and the top 1% have more money than the bottom 92% combined. The labor tensions, though, reflect a vicious capitalist cycle of inflation acting as an indirect tax, transferring wealth to the top and eliminating a middle class, and then driving up prices, which leads to poverty. Homelessness is at over half a million, and something like a third of that is in California, and it's growing fast, which leads to employee demand, which is then superficially accommodated, and then drives up prices again to displace those costs of labor back to the consumer as further inflation. 
Ursula Le Guin, famous author, once gave said in a speech, we live in capitalism, its power seems inescapable. So did the divine right of kings. Any human power can be resisted and changed by human beings. Resistance and change often begin in art, and very often in our art, the art of words. But I would add that we have something much worse than capitalism. It's almost an insult to capitalism. Oppressor and oppressed takes on many forms. So we can go from lord and serf in the feudal times of kings, and as Marx pointed out, the elite, when they sense this revolution, they jump over to the top of the proletariat, um, become the bourgeoisie. Patricia, plebeian, lord and serf, proletariat, bourgeoisie. But we have something much worse than capitalism. It's like a mutant, perverse, racist, almost feudalistic, oligarchical, hegemonic, nepotistic economics. We can't simply look to solve issues within this system or even replace it with a supposedly better system because corruption infects every system. We have to heal the human heart and reckon with the past, repair the harm, relate with humility, welcome back mystery and curiosity and realize some underlying principles of mutuality and interdependence. All the problems on earth are interrelated. Again, in social work, we can find other models to try to make sense and fight for peace. There's a theory called relational cultural theory, or RCT. It's a psychological and sociological framework that emphasizes the significance of relation in human development and well-being. And if you scale it to communities, it highlights or emphasizes interdependence and mutual growth and how communities like Israelis and Palestinians are interdependent. And it can shed light on those intricacies, recognizing that their destinies are intertwined, that their well-being is connected, that there's shared geography and history. It also acknowledges power and balance, like I mentioned. And collective healing and the sharing of stories, the undoing of dehumanization and stereotyping and scapegoating, discourse around social identity and how we keep packing on layers of identity until we can no longer identify our humanity. Identity and belonging. All the problems on earth are interrelated. Environmental degradation predicated on human degradation. Who does the toxic industrial work and lives near the toxic industrial waste, if not the othered? And what do people mean when we hear all the talk in the news, in the office, in our families, when people say they about a group of people? 
They think this. They want this. Even your own family. Does your own family want the same thing? This concept of they is what's known as essentialism or the psychological root of racism. The use of they when it doesn't apply to an individual, when we use it as a blanket for a group or a racialized group, it implies that there's something biologically or neurobiologically different, a substrate underpinning the notion of they. They means other, and that begins the dehumanization. Another question I'd like to ask is what constitutes terror? I think we can all agree Hamas definitely engages in acts of terror. But we must also direct the moral compass upon retribution. And do sophisticated weapons absolve soldiers from terror? So another person that I empathize with are the conscripted soldiers in the IDF who maybe wish there was another way than going in on the ground and possibly dying, but unsure or uncertain where any of this violence is headed. A man in a suit, a defense secretary, a president, a prime minister, can give an order And an operative makes a signal, presses a button, often far away from the people affected, and then technology does the rest. We need to think about this, especially in the dawn of artificial intelligence, because there are technologies and systems operating beyond the efforts of humans, and oftentimes they are exacerbating inequality and people in charge simply shrug their shoulders well it's not what we want you know we don't like it either and talk sweetly we need to think about this because our minds aren't wired for these numbers but rather for stories the u.s sent cluster ammunitions to ukraine against some international concerns about the rules of war Those bombs can detonate years later. So when children in the future plane are ripped apart, who will be held accountable for that? Is that terrorism also? Can we do better than that? And the skin color in any acts of aggression. I mean, it wasn't until 1992 that one California city questioned Columbus Day. 500 years after colonial imperial oppression initiated by Columbus and conquistadors and celebrated that occasion for hundreds of years on that day, not as imperial terrorism of indigenous people, but as the hero of history, the discoverer of the new world, the discoverer of the land of freedom. And not until 2014 did more cities and states everywhere 
widely open up to the concept of an Indigenous Peoples Day on that same day. More than 500 years for there to be a widespread reflection. If you've seen Braveheart and how William Wallace, played by Mel Gibson, brutally kills his oppressors, his enemies, in their beds with a medieval mace and chain to their face. Did we call that terrorism, or was it just badass? Same with Michael Collins and the, the way we remember the Irish resistance. These are just questions that I'm genuinely, genuinely wondering about. I, I don't have a fixed position. Everything I'm saying here is just fluid as I'm trying to process my feelings and my sorrow with you. I'm an eager student here. I'm ready to adapt anything. And I hope to be better informed on this and any crisis as a, as a voice for healing that I know thousands and thousands of people now around the world graciously make time for. I consider it a great privilege and responsibility to communicate with you and religion. I mentioned that hateful beliefs need to be uprooted. What identities are we willing to set down for the sake of a conversation about unity and global harmony? Nationalism and many other isms have been integral with so many wars, genocides, atrocities throughout history. These isms should not supersede humanity and our community with the earth as earthlings, as inhabitants of the earth, with all the other living beings. All these are mental phenomena, social political constructs that divide us and people kill each other over these ideas. Some conservative politicians at the notion of flattening Gaza in the immediate wake of the monstrous, barbaric acts uh, against Israeli population. Some conservative politicians in the United States tweeted things like, just do it, go for it. Proud Christians, mind you. But I, I wonder, where do they get that moral reasoning in the Bible? Maybe in the Old Testament, but when Jesus was apprehended in the garden before his crucifixion, before his murder, his disciple Peter draws a sword, right, and cuts off the ear of one of the guards before a rebuke from Christ. What if Peter instead had looked over at Jesus first, for counsel. These folks must believe Jesus would have nodded and said, just do it. Is it wrong to ask questions? I can hold multiple ideas at once. It's just so sad that as children continue to die and their bodies pile up 
Adults who are safe argue over who has more of a right to vengeance. The seeds are being sown for future radicalization, extremism, terrorism, and civil unrest. There's never been peace in the world. Can it be achieved by force? You can bomb the world to pieces, but not into peace. Peace is not just the absence of violence, but the presence of something, something truly positive, the presence of the conditions of connectivity, mutuality, love, fellowship, interdependence. I think peace can be revealed, but only slowly through understanding. My friend Lisa has a counseling practice called Sacred Journey Wellness. She's a great caring therapist who I would recommend. And she shares inspiring messages. And I want to share one of those with you. Anthropologist Margaret Mead was once asked by a student what she considered to be the first sign of civilization. The student expected Mead to talk about fish hooks or clay pots or grinding stones, but no. She said that the first sign of civilization in, in ancient culture was a femur, a thigh bone, that had been broken and then healed. Mead explained that in the animal kingdom, if you break your leg, you die. You cannot run from danger, get to the river for a drink, or hunt for food. You're meat for prowling beasts. No animal survives a broken leg long enough for the bone to heal. A broken femur that has healed is evidence that someone has taken time to stay with the one who fell, has bound up the wound, has carried the person to safety, has tended the person through recovery. Helping someone else through difficulty is where civilization starts, Mead said. There are cruel extremist groups like Hamas and other evil terror organizations. No one bearing witness should allow themselves to absorb the worst of their hater. That is the crucial boundary. That is how we all can rise. So I named this episode Lead, Follow, or Get in the Way. Of course, I wasn't thinking about this conflict because I gave this talk months ago, but it does speak to the decentralization of power, the qualities of true leadership, not so much what you have to do to be a leader, but what you have to remove to be a leader. And this title... I think is a play on words, but it can indicate that one may lead efforts toward achieving equity or support those who are disempowered or actively oppose and hinder or get in the way of exploitative practices. So I hope that you find meaning inspiration, healing in this episode and any of the other episodes. 
I hope to connect with you soon. I look forward to hearing from you. I welcome your feedback, your correction, your perspective, your collaboration. I send my love to all of you, to everybody suffering during this time. My prayers are with this world. Thank you. Maureen said um, before that kindness leads, kindness holds the door. And that inspired me to think deeper about how kindness is essential in leadership and the kinds of leadership that exists in the world and how we so desperately need leaders in this uh, modern era during this great transition also digital transition, um, technological transition, political transition. We need leaders that would be last to eat and first to go into danger, but we, we often don't get to see that modeled. So I was thinking deeper about what it means to have transformative leadership in our work, in our families, in our activities, in our daily life. This can happen we can be part of this with or without a position or a status in society, even without a leadership title. It's not necessarily about that. We think of this first as an outward process, like how to galvanize people or how to guide or coach others. But really, the transformation I'm talking about begins with ourselves. It's an inner process. So anyone can become leaders by way of the inner work. Take mental health treatment, for example. Every time someone accesses help and recovers or heals with depression or substance use disorder, they make it easier for the next person because every time they engage in this journey, they demonstrate hope and give it. So it reduces the stigma surrounding um, these conditions. Someone wasn't well, and now they're well, or doing better. So there are realities to mental health conditions that others can see who m- may not um, understand it in that way. Otherwise, how did treating a condition improve it? And the words leader or leadership, it comes from this root word in Old English, laid which meant a route or a way. And there are as many ways to do something as there are people on the planet. Anytime we expand in wisdom, we reveal another way. It's such an organic and humble way to approach what it means to lead, which is through inspiration, inspiring by example. But then this word became a verb, laden, or to lead, which meant to go the way, to know the way, and then show the way. Our inner work is not simply like personal development, self-improvement, or adding on to what we have, including metaphysically, like adding knowledge. But a theme that I keep revisiting, like we talked about with integrity unwoven, 
that rather this kind of transformation involves acknowledging and removing the barriers to understanding, to cooperation, and, and ultimately to harmony with the earth and its inhabitants. Here's what comes up for me when I think about transformative leadership and kindness in this way. What needs to come out for it to shine unimpeded? First, the absence of conceit. And none of this is all or nothing. It is uh, a path of revelation. Conceit is excessive pride that closes people off from one another. Morality is often introduced to us as being good for the wrong reasons. Like, fearing God can mean one is trying to win approval, or avoid hell, or earn heaven, and then might be only pretending to be good to attain something. Um, and not for goodness sake, you know, like, uh, like with Santa, <laughs> this is another example. Be good and Santa will, will give you gifts. And I'm not saying we can't create meaning with these beliefs or traditions, but it's important to understand that everything we do or have has a corollary or counterpart on the earth. And when you set up these sort of pass-fail moralities, these binaries, then people will just do what you need to do to pass and not necessarily go deeper into what does a good life look like? What does it mean to be good-hearted? What does it mean to transform ourselves, to see interconnection? So we might talk about this as blessings of the universe, but it's just good to remember that where we derive these blessings, these benefits, so sometimes this is subtle, like in, in gratitude, when gratitude only equals blessings and not the acknowledgement that there may be some inherent privilege or an opportunity that we receive through no merit of our own, but is denied elsewhere through no fault of one's own. And when we uproot this conceit, this idea that I exist independent of the rest, you know, that, or that I am more important than the rest and don't belong to each other, that we don't belong to one another. But when we uproot it, we can feel and we can directly perceive the interdependence with nature and, and even with other sentient beings. Also, our modern leaders are typically rewarded for their certitude with anything, whereas true leadership really needs to be open and fluid and connecting with the solutions as they present themselves in concert with the needs or the will of the people that we serve. So absence of conceit. The second one is absence of deceit. Deceit threatens the coherence to all the dimensions of life, which speaks to our trustworthiness and like we were saying before with integrity. A third one is the absence of indifference. It's popular now to uh, not give an F about things, but I think that's too extreme. I think we ought to care, but not worry too much. Fourth is an absence of control. It can be really nebulous between the urge to save the world and the will to rule it. We can think about like parents and children. Parents have authority and therefore they have power and a leadership role over their children. 
But there's a difference between collaborating in this partnership and ruling children. Fifth one is the um, absence of ignorance. And again, this takes time to shine a light on our dark parts. And it's a process. Bringing light to those places where it might not be comfortable to really explore. And coming back to our privileges, sometimes people ignore this idea, like, what am, what am I born with? You know, what are the opportunities that are just inherent because I'm a man, for instance? And sometimes people ignore it because they don't feel it. Like, I don't feel any privilege because I, I feel more of the struggle. But in the matrix of privilege and subjugation, our default sense tends to go to the mistreatment. We even often build our identity around what stands out negatively to others. But this makes it so hard to talk about any of the systemic imbalances, power imbalances, and have meaningful dialogue. So privilege isn't a feeling. It's a reality. And another big one with this is love. Who has love and who doesn't? Which children have the full support of their parents and who doesn't? Who have their parents and who doesn't? You can't necessarily see it by looking at someone. But as, again, as a, as a straight white male, if I can't talk about racism or patriarchy because of some other intersection of my identity, like, like a health issue or a socioeconomic status, then we can't lead, we can't heal society and repair historical wrongs or atrocities. And then the last one is the absence of haste with all of this. There's an importance to timing, reflection, and thoughtful action. Any kind of leadership requires an integration of our hands, our heart, and our head, which reflects action emotion, feeling, empathy, compassion, and intellect or logic or rationality. There's a book from authors Anthony Kelly and Sandra Sewell, who are Australian social work educators, and they have a book called With Head, Heart, and Hand. And they put forth some ideas for leading and cultivating social change by knowing, feeling, and doing uh, together, you know, and describing these three human capacities and how each one is important in and of itself. But no one of these by itself and without the addition of the other two, not even just one, that even taken in pairs, no two are sufficient without the third. So for example, head and hand, like without the heart, this is a familiar combination in public life. The politician or public administrator whose feelings are blocked, whose heart is disconnected or considered irrelevant. Or we could have heart and hand without the head. And this can lead to impulsive or undisciplined action. Head and heart without our hands. This can leave one stuck with knowledge and good intentions, but with no action direction to pursue. So bringing again all of these three together in a piece of work, in art, or in a relationship with, with someone, or to an understanding of our context. 
is to expand a social reality um, to at least these dimensions. Head, heart, and hand points to a quality of wholeness that we've talked about before with kindness. Even an attempt at wholeness in our life and in our, in our work. What is the difference between a ruler and a leader? I think there might be some Venn diagram overlapping, but for the most part, they can be quite different. Because a true leader, when it comes to some formal role, again, needs to be able to subdue their self-interest and put the needs and the concerns of the people that they serve ahead of their own. But we know that this isn't really the case in today's world, but that's why spirituality is important, because it's about being the light. Or you may be uh, familiar with the Cardinal Newman poem, Lead Kindly Light. It's about bringing light to where there's darkness, like um, or like in the, the prayer of St. Francis, where there's darkness, let me bring light. And I'd like to draw attention to some of these ten- tensions between these positions of power and the true spirit of leadership. One is the source of power. For a leader, their source is through inspiration. It's the earth, the shared abundance. For a ruler, it might be preordained, like royalty. It might be the power to enforce or power that was stolen or usurped. And then the power dynamic with the people between and the community between a leader versus a ruler. For the leader, this is collaborative. This is about partnering. For the ruler, it's about hierarchy and the hierarchical relationship of command and control of, and the subjects are expected to obey. Mary Parker Follett was a, a pioneering management thinker in the United States at the turn of the 20th century. And she emphasized the importance of collaborative leadership and had a unique way of describing power with versus power over. And then the approach to power. A true leader decentralizes it, um, starting with themselves. So can leverage their privilege or could be willing even to lose their position to uplift others. And sometimes this is difficult. I think we're seeing this in society as there's a struggle for equality. There's a saying that uh, for somebody with a lot of privilege, equality can feel like victimization. I think there's a there's another way to think about this also, that sometimes through just from how we're born, we inherit some opportunity or benefit. Like I said, like being a straight white male, not only being male, but like a male male being the captain of the football team or being popular in school. So it's like there was even a spectrum there of benefits that I derived. But thinking about how to decentralize that um, and share that. But but the other way I was going to say this is sometimes this is like a high with substances. And when you remove the, the elevated experience, the elevated status, a person doesn't just neatly come back to their baseline. Um, we call this the valley in substance use treatment um, or withdrawal or detox. And so sometimes people need support, you know. I think it contributes to some of the, the male mental health issues as 
society changes in the technological age and the um, the stereotypes and the roles for for men and women shift and and as men try to reorient to purpose they might struggle with loneliness and even depression so it's about also being able to educate people about the changes in society and how this how this could feel and how we could still support one another because it's not as simple as well you know you've had your reign or whatever because everybody's health affects everybody else every boy has a mother you know for for example so supporting one another through these shifts that need to happen and then the approach to power with leadership again for the ruler they're trying to centralize it they're trying to have top down governance and maintain the status quo whereas a true leader is trying to redistribute the gifts and that's my i've said this before that's my conception of abundance that i can keep giving and then the universe will trust me as a conduit because of fear i want to protect this but if i give it away it's really a demonstration of my faith of my trust in the goodness of the higher power or um or the divine or the universe and finally a change in power like i'm talking about for the ruler it's rigid they don't want to to lose it for the leader it's fluid and the leader is adaptable there are a couple different schools of thought here that kind of reflect some of this that i find interesting plato in his work the republic he introduces the concept of the philosopher king and he argues that rulers should be those who are the most knowledgeable or the wisest and that philosophy is central to this like philosophy is not just an ideology or a theory but it's a, it's a practice and knowledgeable about what is good and what is just so leadership in plato's view should not be about power or privilege but about service and wisdom however in machiavelli's view in the prince he offers a pragmatic sometimes controversial view on leadership which he argues to maintain power it's necessary to be immoral at least sometimes and while many view machiavelli's work as a manual for ruthless leadership others do interpret it as a satire or or simply a critique of power a couple other dynamics that are interesting between Max Weber the German uh, American sociologist he introduced a concept of charismatic authority he argued that certain leaders gain this not because of a tradition or legal means but because of their personal charm and he but he also warned of the dangers of this turning into a cult of personality and i think we see that a lot where we lose sight of the the politics uh at the grassroots level where if you care about an issue like the true engagement of leadership is being of service in your community creating safe spaces providing support or shelter to victims of domestic violence not just defending a person you know not just blindly following a person and thinking that that will solve all our problems John Locke alternatively in his political writings emphasized the social contract between leaders and the governed and he argued that that leaders derive this position from the consent of the people and that they therefore have a responsibility to protect the rights the human rights of the people and if a, and if a leader violates this contract they ought to be justly overthrown And this reminded me actually of a 
painful lesson of mine that I learned in, in elementary school. I don't know why this memory came back to me, but it did, so I thought I would share it. When I was in like fourth or fifth grade, our elementary school had these poetry fests. I think they're probably pretty common in a lot of schools. And each class would have like one or two representatives. I had my Shel Silverstein poem, and a few of us wanted to represent our class, and we had a vote. Everybody shared the, who wanted to shared their poem, and then we voted on who who should go on behalf of the class. And I won by one vote. I had uh, 13 votes and Susie had 12. But the teacher didn't say you couldn't vote for yourself. And I voted for myself. And afterwards, Susie came over to me and said, you know, to congratulate me and said, and, and I also voted for you. And then I just blurted out, oh, I voted for myself. And, uh, and, and I just saw this look of disappointment on her face. And she was like, oh. And then I quickly realized what Susie did. Susie voted for me thinking, I want to support somebody else. And we'll let the class decide who they want to represent them. And, and I felt this right away. And I said to her, I said, you know, I, you did the noble or whatever, my child voice. You know, you did the, the bigger thing. And, um, and thought about what, what the whole group wanted, not just what you wanted. And I was just thinking about myself. And, but it couldn't be undone and because it, we, already, we already voted. But I, that stuck with me that it's up to the people whether or not you should represent them. Um, Sun Tzu and Lao Tzu have two very different ideas about leadership. Sun Tzu, in his Art of War, talked about understanding the enemy knowing the opponent and exploiting them. Some of his teachings include appear weak when you're strong and strong when you're weak. The kings and, and queens of the past didn't really have a lot of power. They didn't have jets and weapons and global influence and all of that. Um, so they wore jewelry, they wore crowns, and they, and they beheaded people in public. But today, people, billionaires have tremendous power, but they wear t-shirts and, um, and fight capitalism with us. Um, so just a few ideas from Lao Tzu. He, he divides a leader into, of, uh, like a government leader, into four categories. When it's a supreme person, like a master, the people are hardly aware that he or she exists. That's the best. The next is a leader who's loved by the people. Third is one who's feared, and the worst of all is one who's despised. If you don't trust the people, you make them untrustworthy. When a master's work is done, the people say, amazing, we did it all by ourselves. And then he goes on later in verse 57, if you want to be a great leader, you must learn how to follow, how to follow the great way. Stop trying to control. Let go of fixed plans and concepts and help the world govern itself. For governing a country, there's nothing better than moderation. The mark of a moderate leader or a tolerant leader is the freedom from his own ideas, tolerant like the sky, all pervading like sunlight, firm like a mountain in one sense, but supple like a tree in the wind, without a clear destination in view. They can make use of anything that life happens to bring their way. Nothing is impossible for this one. Because they've let go, they can care for the people's welfare. 
just a few final thoughts here. Um, I also really get a lot of inspiration from the philosophy of Hannah Arendt, um, a German-American historian and political philosopher. And she makes some other interesting points that maybe power isn't what we think it is, that power is always in the people, power is always in the earth or in the divine or in the higher power, like God. But because of this, people use violence, people who don't have power. Royals use violence, hegemons use violence, because really the power is in the earth. It's not in one person or one family or one socioeconomic strata. And she advocated for councils. This reminds me of indigenous ideas of leadership built on consensus, continuing to dialogue until there's a consensus or council. She also distinguished authority from power, that there could be organic authority, that somebody really dedicates their life to understanding something or to spirit spirituality and by their own inner work they have expertise and the people follow it out of respect not because they weaponize it to conclude here are a few other intersections of kindness with leadership or dialectics that we can derive strength from our vulnerability when we can admit mistakes seek help and express our genuine emotions, we can build trust and deepen our connection with the people that look up to us. Leading by serving, uh, or servant leadership in the sense that we prioritize the needs of others and where we see a power imbalance. Like for example, when I'm at the hospital, there's a power imbalance. I'm a clinician, they're feeling vulnerable or, uh, or weak. And so to decentralize that by letting them know this is your choice. And there, were, there are other options, you know, that if this process isn't serving you, isn't faithful to you, that I want to empower you to seek the right partnership, that there's an appreciation for that trust and for entering in that sacred space together. And we can find confidence through our humility. We can speak by listening, leaning in, tuning in, validating, paying attention, that actually says a lot to someone else that they're safe with you, that they can trust you, that you're not going to judge them. Being decisive in our choices, yet flexible. It doesn't matter how much we've invested into something. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. We ought to be able to, to shift, to pivot. And having vision, but being grounded, finding stability through change. I've learned these things or offer these things and, and I'm not even sure about them but I offer them up for, for dialogue and conversation mostly based on my own mistakes and my flaws failures and and conflicts in my experiences in work and in life I'll conclude with this this short story a wise old man was a revered sage in a small fishing village on a river and he was asked about the essence of Zen and leadership and how to maintain peace of mind. Peace of mind amidst challenges posed by being in a, in a role or being in a position of authority. He responded with this, Once I was sitting by the river in my boat, lost in meditation, and suddenly it was interrupted and disturbed because I heard a loud noise and there was another boat with no one in it which had struck mine. I looked 
and I saw that the boat was empty. There was no one to shout at, no one to be angry with. This empty boat had just drifted with the current, with the river, and hit mine. It made me smile, and then, then I went back to my meditation and was undisturbed. So the sage elaborated, if you are empty of your own ego, prejudices, and rigid views, then you won't collide with others, even if they try to provoke you. Just like the empty boat that hit mine, if the boat had someone who intentionally struck mine, I might have shouted back, reacted, and been disturbed. But it was empty, and the result was the same. And so, there was no one to contend with, no one to fight with. The villagers contemplated this message and realized the profound lesson of leadership that the sage was conveying. A leader freeing themselves from their own ego and conceit, who does not take things personally, who approaches situations with an open heart, adaptable mind, is less likely to encounter conflicts and more likely to lead with grace, kindness, understanding, and effectiveness.